Uh, whenever a great coach retires from coaching, there's an immense amount of pressure on the person who has to follow after him, isn't there? We'll say, man, he's got awfully big shoes to fill to follow the coach that came before him. So, for example, uh, you, you're probably aware of this. If you follow sports, you've, you're aware of the conversation. It's been going on for years now. Who's going to replace Nick Saban at Alabama whenever he finally decides to retire? Uh, maybe the, the most successful legendary coach in college football history, who's, who is it that's got all the skill and experience and mentality and desire to actually follow such a legendary coach and, and succeed even remotely close to what they've experienced under Saban. I mean, there might be at most just a handful of guys that would be capable of filling those kind of shoes, right? Now, fortunately, at least if you're an Alabama fan, it doesn't appear that Nick Saban will ever retire. I mean, I, he'll, he'll still be coaching when I'm retired, I'm pretty sure, at this point. But y'all, as we, as we look at John 14 today, there's a very clear shift that's taking place right before our eyes. Jesus has spent three years effectively in public ministry with his disciples, going from town to town, teaching and performing miracles and pointing people to himself. But now that we're here in these latter chapters of John, the public ministry has ceased, and Jesus is with his disciples literally in the hours before his suffering and death. Jesus knows that the cross is before him where he will suffer and die, and then he will rise again, and then 40 days after his resurrection, he'll ascend to the Father in heaven. And so what Jesus is doing now, in these final moments, he's preparing his disciples for his departure. He's speaking words of comfort and encouragement as well as words of, of, of command and challenge because he knows he's about to send these men out without his physical presence. They will be his ambassadors, his witnesses, in the world, but they will do it in his absence, or at least his physical absence. And y'all, as you might imagine, these disciples have not known any other way. They have only been disciples of Jesus, and they followed him step by step for three years. So the thought of having him gone is not only confusing, it's terrifying. How in the world are we going to go on without him? How in the world are we going to fill his shoes and continue the work without him? And y'all, that's a pertinent question for us too. Because as we sit here, Jesus is still raised and still glorified. And so we might ask the question, well, how can we follow someone we can't see? And how can we carry on the work that he's given his disciples to do without him here for us to physically follow behind him? And y'all, at, at, at a deeper level, if I just recognize my own heart and my sinfulness, who am I to begin to think that I could be his representative in this world? That I could actually reflect Jesus as I'm supposed to, to the people around me? And when we think about the shoes that we're trying to fill here, Jesus' shoes, all of our feet combined couldn't fill these kind of shoes, right? How are we supposed to live when Jesus is physically absent, right, and has left us behind to do the work of the kingdom. Well, here in John 14, we come to some remarkable promises from the mouth of Jesus 
explaining to the disciples and to us what it is for us to live after his glory and ascension. Right? And so we're picking up today in John 14, verse 8. If you were with us last week, Jesus told the disciples something of himself. If you know me, he says, then you also know God the Father and you have seen him. That's a powerful statement. If you know me, you know God the Father and you have seen him. Jesus told that to Thomas and to the eleven, but the disciples, uh, they're, they're not quite getting it, right? No surprise here. Look at verse 8. Philip, now Philip chimes in. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Okay, Philip, I'm sure, has good intentions right here. But this is a very frustrating request. And, and Philip receives a frustrated response from Jesus. He's obviously agitated by this. Three years you've walked with me, and you still don't know me? You still haven't understood? And Jesus doubles down on the affirmation, if you have seen me, then you have seen the Father. Now, in some sense, the disciples, maybe they're still thinking of Jesus as maybe God's representative and not as God himself. And we shouldn't be too hard on them in that case. Sometimes I'm hard on the disciples, just like in the Old Testament, I'm hard on the Israelites. Y'all, I would be right there with them. I mean, it's just, it's just the truth. Because if you're, if you're the disciples, they've been with Jesus for three years, and they, they believe in him. Yes, they do. But there's, it's so beyond the scope of our imagination for any of us to look at another person, a person who looks just like us, and to declare that person to be God. Right? We're not meant to think in those categories. And it's difficult, even for the disciples at this point, to really see Jesus with clarity for who he claims to be. It'd be hard for me too. But Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't soften his stance here. The, the same thing he's been saying all throughout John, he repeats once again, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him too, right? That is to say there's perfect unity between Father and Son. There's unity of substance and purpose and words and actions. We are all together one, Jesus says, of his relationship with the Father. And that's why he can say, everything I say to you, everything I do, is the Father abiding in me to do his works. If you've seen me, you've seen him. And so Jesus concludes, if, if, you, if it's hard to take my word for it, fine. But the works I perform are a testimony to me also. And so Jesus is reflecting with his disciples. Remember when I turned water into wine? And I fed the multitude? Remember the healings? Remember raising Lazarus from the dead? Remember all the times I've forgiven sin and set people free from bondage and even 
demon possession? Are these not the exclusive works of God? Can anybody else do such things? Not to mention the perfectly righteous life that Jesus lived, the only man who ever walked the earth who never sinned. These are things that only God can do. And so Jesus is declaring not just my words that give testimony to my identity, but the works themselves bear witness that I am the Son of God. All right. Now, if you've, been, if you've walked with us through John or if you've ever read John, this is nothing new. Jesus has to repeat it for our sake, but he's been saying it over and over and over that he is God's Son and that the proof is in the words. The proof is in the... The, the works, right? But now Jesus is going to say something new, or at least it's new to us, new to the disciples. Jesus is going to connect himself to us in a way that frankly feels too good to be true. What Jesus says in terms of these promises we read today, they really don't seem real. And maybe for us, we've, we've taken a cynical approach to, to these things Jesus says, and, and we just make it really tough to believe that these things could be true. I, it's easier for me, honestly, to believe that the Jesus is God part than it is to believe some of what he says next. And, and you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 12. We're going to read the rest of this section all in one piece to begin with. Verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, I read all of that in one piece because it's meant to be seen as one cohesive unit. It's tied together, but we need to break it down into pieces also, okay? And so Jesus makes a couple of promises uh, sandwiched around a, a command or, an, or an, uh, an admonition here. But look at that first promise, and this really is stunning. Jesus says, he who believes in me, the works I do, he will do also. And greater works than these, he will do. Now, when Jesus speaks of his works, he, he, he's speaking about his entire ministry, the whole of his ministry, including his miracles. These are all of his works that he has in mind right here. And so immediately we're faced with a conundrum, right? If Jesus is including everything he did, including his miracles, huh, um, how many miracles have you performed, say, in the last month? Probably the same number as me. Y'all, I can barely tread water. I've certainly never walked on it, okay? Um, what does Jesus mean here if he's talking about us doing not only the same works, but even greater works than he does? Well, and, and I, y'all don't, my goal as a, as a preacher is never to soften the words of Jesus so that they're easier to explain and understand, okay? But our job is, is hopefully to, to pin down the, the meaning here in the context, right? When Jesus says, by faith, you will do my works and even greater works than these, 
the point for us is not, we, are, we all do sensational miracles, even greater miracles than Jesus. That's not only unbiblical, okay? It's also not our, our experience. I'm sure it's not yours, it's not mine either. Okay? And so if we take Jesus at his word here, we're, we, have to, we have to dig deeper to understand what he means. Because even, y'all, even when Jesus performed miracles, and we, we, we've talked about this at each turn, every time we came to a miracle, the point was made that John calls them signs because that's what they are. They are signs that point to something greater than just the miracle itself. The water into wine, the feeding of the multitude, the raising of Lazarus, those those are signs that point people to Jesus as Lord and Savior. The ultimate goal of the miracle is faith in the miracle worker. And so when we see a promise like this, we don't take this to mean Jesus wants me to walk on water too. But no, that my life, your life, the ultimate work that Jesus has given us to do is the same work that he came to do which is in all things to point people to him as Savior and Lord. And so when Jesus says we will do the same works and even greater works than these, we don't soften that, but we do need to understand it in the context of what he means. And y'all, if you look at the end of verse 12, here's the key. And it's almost, it's easy to miss because we get so enamored with the promise. He says even greater works than these will we do because I go to the Father because I go to the Father. That's the grounding for the power he's talking about us possessing. The greater works that you and I are given to accomplish are made possible because Jesus has gone to the Father, which is to say, Jesus has died and has been raised. The power for the disciples to accomplish the great works of Jesus is because Jesus has gone ahead of us to accomplish the great work of salvation. Otherwise, there is no power. There are no greater works that we're called to do unless the greatest work has been already done. And so y'all think about this. If you and I live in the year 2021, and Jesus says even greater works than these in John, you'll do. How do we compute that? Well, if the greatest work has been accomplished, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the finished work of salvation has already been done, then everything you and I do now for Christ is in light of that greatest work. Everything that Jesus' disciples do in the world is spreading the good news of what Christ has accomplished and therefore the greater work of salvation led by the Holy Spirit is being accomplished every day and in every place. Not just in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria, but to the remotest parts of the earth. And so one of the great examples of this that comes immediately almost in the scripture is in Acts chapter 2. You don't need to turn to Acts 2. But in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes with power on the apostles, just as Jesus promised. And the people of Jerusalem are, are caught up in the confusion of what's happening. And so Peter stands up. Peter, bumbling, stumbling Peter, who only weeks prior had denied ever knowing Jesus, Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2, and delivers a a three-and-a-half-minute sermon. If you read it out loud from Acts 2, that's about how long it takes. Three-and-a-half minutes. And 3,000 people get saved. Was was Peter a better preacher than Jesus? Because by, by, by my reckoning, Jesus never got that kind of response from any message he preached. No. 
the greater works were being accomplished because the Spirit had come and the risen Jesus was being proclaimed as Savior of the world. These really are greater works that we get to be a part of, not because we're doing sensational miracles, but because we're living in the after effect, the afterglow of the resurrection of our Savior. Now, the work of the Spirit is essential in that. We're going to get to that in a minute. Jesus will in a minute. But y'all, just let me just pause here to say something to us. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are seeking to live by faith in Him, and you want to obey Christ, and you want good fruit to come in your life, you want to make a difference for the sake of Jesus, right now where you are, no matter what else is going on around you, no matter what you think of yourself or what you see when you look in the mirror, if you love Jesus and you want him to be known, then you are engaged in a greater work than you can possibly imagine. Because it's empowered by and commanded by and animated by Jesus himself. Not because you're great in yourself or I'm anything in myself, but because it's his work, his grace and power working through us. And so you and I should never ever diminish the things that we do for the sake of Jesus and his glory no matter how unseen it feels, no matter how insignificant it seems in your eyes, in his eyes, it's eternally significant. It's great because it's empowered by a risen Savior. Don't diminish what you do for his sake. Now, that's the promise of the work. And everything else that comes now is in light of this promise. Jesus is going to show us how he intends to produce this great work in us and he gives us three factors here. This is how the scripture works together. We're going to accomplish Jesus' great works through prayer, through obedience, and ultimately through the Holy Spirit. Prayer, obedience, and the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13 again. Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, the promises keep getting more outrageous, don't they? And y'all, this is, I mentioned a minute ago, the cynical part of me. And if there's a cynical side of you, we may look at this promise and say, okay, all right. There's a lot of things I've asked in Jesus' name that I never got, that never came to be. I prayed for my sweet grandma in Jesus' name, and she still died. And we could go on down the list of all the things that we've prayed for that didn't seem to materialize. We didn't get what we asked for. And so we have to wonder now, what does Jesus mean? Is, is, is this a false promise? Have I missed something here? And y'all, again, we have to consider context. And I'm not softening this, I just want us to see the purpose here. When Jesus says, anything you ask in my name, that will I do. What does he mean? Right? Well, first thing, y'all, and this is, this, I know this is kind of common sense, but we, it needs to be said. Praying in Jesus' name is not a magic incantation that as long as I say at the end of my prayer, in Jesus' name, amen, that somehow that takes my prayer way up the chain, you know, on up to the top of the list for God to answer because I said the right words at the end. And some people will take what Jesus says here that way, that as long as I speak the correct formula, that makes my prayer somehow more effective. And that's not the point. Because the point ultimately is what Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And again, that's the grounding, that's the purpose. Any prayer that Jesus answers on our behalf, the ultimate purpose for that answer 
is the glory of the Father, right? And so that's, that, that's something that we've got to nail down for ourselves. In the context of the promise here, Jesus is not pray, speaking of prayer broadly. Pray for anything you want and I'll do it. Now, should you pray for anything you want at any time? Yes. Right? Pray. We should pray for our sick grandmother. We should, there's all sorts of things we pray for, and we should, and God delights to hear us. But the context of this promise is that we're praying for the things that bring glory to the Father. We're praying for Jesus Christ to accomplish his works in us, right? We're asking Jesus to be glorified in the good works we do as his disciples. We're asking for the grace to do what Jesus has left us to do in his physical absence. And so, yes, we pray for everything and anything in the broader sense of prayer, but there's a specific kind of prayer in view here. Anything we pray for, for Jesus' sake, that we might do his works for the Father's glory, Jesus will give us what we ask. And that is a promise. Jesus will always give us what we ask if our request is, God, glorify yourself in me. Open a door for ministry that I might shine a light on Jesus Christ for others to see. Jesus will always answer that prayer because that's precisely why he came into the world and that's the greater work that he's given us to do. And y'all, just as a point of confession, I don't pray that kind of prayer very often. The more broad prayers, right, the prayers for circumstances and for myself, those are the easy, more natural, more common prayers in my experience. And so a lot of times when I neglect this prayer, Jesus, you be glorified in my life. Give me works to do today that bring glory to the Father. I don't think to pray like that. And therefore, oftentimes I don't receive because I don't ask. And so the greater works here are works that we pray to be empowered to accomplish. We come to Jesus asking him to do his great work through us. That's the context here. And he always promises to answer it. So that's one factor. That's prayer. Second is obedience. And we catch that in verse 15. This is the, the non-promise here among the group. It's, it's merely an, uh, an, an affirmation. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. We're not going to go long on this point. We'll actually see it in more detail next week. But obedience to Christ is a, a, a necessary factor in our doing his work in the world. And I know that sounds very common sense, and it is. Obedience to Christ is required if we're going to accomplish his work in the world. And so again, we're going to leave this, the meat on the bone for next week. But here, I want to make one little connection, one highlight here. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. I love the fact that Jesus makes that connection for us. It seems, again, like it, it ought to be clear. If you've, ever had, if you've ever been a parent of young children, you've said this to them. If you love me, you'll do what I say. Right? That, we, 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 that, we got that from somewhere. We got it from Jesus, okay? Because that's God's heart toward us. And I just want to highlight this to say, if, when Jesus calls you to obey him, his appeal, his grounding for that obedience is love. Jesus could have appealed to fear, right here. Obey me or else. And for a lot of people, that's our perception of how God operates. Obey me or else something bad's going to happen. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus could have appealed to guilt. 
and harped on our guilt and our shame. Kyle, obey me for once in your miserable life. Can you just obey me today? Just just for one day. And you know what, y'all? Fear and guilt will get us moving. Whether in the workplace or in our relationships or even when it comes to our perception of God, if I feel fearful enough and guilty enough, I'll move. I'll act. But of course, my heart remains unchanged. Jesus could have appealed to greed. Obey me and I'll give you what you really want. You'll get it. But no. He appeals to love. Love me by obeying me. And y'all, I hope we already know, we talk about it constantly, how much Jesus has loved us and the demonstration of his love that he gave his own life for us. Jesus now turns the tables. If you love me, you'll walk in my commands. You'll obey me. And y'all, really, there, there shouldn't be any need for other motivations in our hearts. Fear, guilt, greed, you name it, should never enter the conversation Love ought to be for us the only motivation we need. Um, and so, uh, y'all, I, take a breath with me, okay, before we, we're going to turn the final corner here. We're really going to get into the most important part of these, these promises. But think about what Jesus has said. And so often, y'all, I, I stop short of understanding the, the real foundation for what makes all this run. I look, I, I'm the kind of person that if I recognize deficiency or problems in my life, just tell me the answer and I'll do what it takes to solve it. Right? That's the way I'm geared. Tell me the problem and I'll fix it. Right? And y'all, in, in life, sometimes that works, you know? Um, but not when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. There's nothing wrong with us that, that can be fixed within. Okay? The things that are wrong with us uh, must have a divine solution, okay? So don't take Jesus to be saying this. Okay, listen, I'm leaving, y'all. We're just hours away. I'm going to be gone. But you'll do great. You'll, you'll do better than great. Listen, all you got to do is pray and obey my words, and you'll be fine. That's not what's happening here. And if we stop short, that might be our conclusion. As if Jesus is saying, listen, guys, I carried the ball as far as I could take it. I got you into the red zone. Now I'm going to hand the ball off to you and you take it the rest of the way. I'm going to leave you with the, with the remaining work. I got, you, I got you off to a good start. All right? You can do this. That's not the message, y'all. That's not the message for us. And sometimes that's how we treat spiritual things. That Jesus got me through the door, but now it's up to me. But no, look at this last promise. This is the promise that binds all of it together. Verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Now that's a promise. When I go to the Father, Jesus says, he will send you another helper to be with you forever. And there's a little key word right there, that word another, another helper, which implies that they have a helper now, or that they've had one. Jesus is making reference here to himself, right? Jesus has been their helper to this point. And y'all really, maybe your translation is different, more, more effective than mine, but that word helper is actually not the, the best word. 
it's the best word we have in English for that Greek word. But the reality behind that word helper really means strengthener, encourager, one who enlightens us and leads us and counsels us and comforts us. One who animates what we do from the inside out. That's what helper means here. That's what Jesus has been to the disciples and that's what he's promising them in the future. And you notice that word helper is capitalized. Capital H, because we're talking about a person, a divine person here. And so that's the promise. Jesus is about to depart, but when he does, the Father will send another divine helper, the Spirit of truth, and he will be with us always. Now, Jesus is going to speak more plainly uh, on the Spirit in coming verses and chapters. We're going to get there when we get there. And so I don't want to, I don't, we're not going to give a whole survey of the Holy Spirit today, but I just, let, me, let me give you a few quick key things here, okay? The Helper, who is the Holy Spirit, is a He, not an It. And we need to be really careful on this point. It's easy for us to think of the Spirit of God as a power or a force or a feeling, but in truth, the Spirit is the very person of God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the triune God is Father, Son, and Spirit. When we speak of the Spirit, the Spirit's not an it. And y'all, sometimes I catch myself doing that, even though I know better. The Spirit is a person. It's the very person of God. And so the ministry of the Spirit is God himself actively working in and through and among us. That's the promise. And the ministry of the Spirit is unique in the sense that if, if the Spirit were merely a governing force kind of in the atmosphere, uh, positive vibes, sometimes people refer to that force, whatever that is. There is no such force, by the way. But this idea that, I, that anybody can tap into that force and bring it down for our purposes or speak it somehow and send it elsewhere, right? No. The Spirit of God is a unique person of God who exists for the people of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says the world does not know him, the world has not received him. Because receiving the Spirit depends on faith in Jesus Christ. Only after Jesus goes to the Father on our behalf will the Father then send the Spirit to those who believe. And also we see the Spirit's ministry is not a hovering ministry, right? But an indwelling ministry an abiding ministry. He will be with you and will be in you. Y'all, there, there's, now we're skipping ahead for just a second. In, over in chapter 16, Jesus says something truly wild. One of these harder to believe kind of statements. Jesus will say to the disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away because only then will the helper come to you. Now that's one we just can't get behind. It's to your advantage that I leave? How could that possibly be true? But Jesus actually says there's something better than having me physically in front of you. It's having the very Spirit of God within you. And y'all, that's something we need to take to heart. Better than Jesus in front of us. Somebody wrote a book about this. I'm plagiarizing right now. Forgive me. I don't know who it was. J.D. Greer. Better than having some Jesus in front of us is the Spirit within us. And that really is true. Jesus said so. And here's why, y'all. Because the Spirit of God 
is the divine helper given by God so that we might accomplish the good works Jesus gave us to do. Every single thing Jesus has promised and called us to depends on the Spirit. The promise of the Spirit is essential. If, listen, if we're going to achieve the great works of Jesus on this earth, it's only by the power of the Spirit who indwells us. It will not happen by you and me gritting our teeth and trying to be spiritual. Only the Spirit can animate us and empower us to do anything good for Christ. It's only by the Spirit that we're able to pray and pray for God's will and for God's glory. Y'all, only by the Spirit are you and I able to pray in a way that glorifies God. Anybody can pray. Anybody can pray. But the prayers that glorify God are animated by, translated in a sense by the Spirit. That's why we're told to pray in the Spirit. It's only by the Spirit that we're able to obey Christ. Which is why we're told to walk by the Spirit, and therefore we will not carry out the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5. It's only by the Spirit that we can do anything Jesus is calling us to do. And so we're here at the end of the message. There's a lot more to be said about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But y'all, as, as, we're, as we're landing the plane here today, there's one big point that for us is, is essential and wonderful. When Jesus says, I am going to the Father, the disciples took that as despairing news. This is the end, they thought. How can we go on without him? And you and I might take it as a discouragement also. Jesus has left us to ourselves, to our own devices, to our own best intentions? Is that how this is supposed to go? How much, you know, you've thought this, I've thought this too, how much easier life would be if we had Jesus walking in front of us, showing us where to go, telling us what to do. If I could just get covered in a little bit of the dust of his feet, wouldn't that be wonderful? Jesus says, no. You've got something better. Only if he has gone to the Father, only if Jesus Christ has died for our sins and been raised again to victory, can we be saved and reconciled to God. Unless Jesus goes to the Father and leaves physically and ascends to glory, only then will we be given the Holy Spirit by which we are able to live for him in this present world. All of the confusion and the despair of the disciples, Jesus calls them to put to rest here. He has not left us to ourselves. He has given us over and abundantly all that we need to live for him by the power and the grace of his very spirit within us. That may be hard to believe, but every single thing you need right now, you have if you've trusted Jesus. Every single thing. We're not as we ought to be. We're not as obedient as we ought to be. We don't pray like we ought to pray. We don't walk as we ought to walk. Sure, right? Join the club. I'm first in line. But it's not because we lack anything that Christ has failed to provide. We have the very Spirit of God. Jesus Christ has saved us through his death and resurrection. And Jesus Christ has given us his very Spirit so that the great works of God might be achieved through bumbling, stumbling, us. If Peter could do it after denying Christ, then you and I can do it too. If Thomas and Philip could do it after questioning Jesus at every turn, even here at the end, then you and I can do it too. Because the same Spirit 
in them resides also in us. And by his grace, we can do all things that please God. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. Uh, Help me and my sisters and brothers in this room to really believe what we've been taught, to believe what Jesus has said. Because there's so much in me, I just don't want to believe it. I just don't, I don't feel like this could be true. That I could do anything great that really brings glory to Christ. Or maybe I struggle to believe that my prayers really have any effect at all, that, that you would even hear me, Father. Maybe it's hard to feel like um, my, my, my prayers are, are getting above the ceiling. Um, Lord, I look at my own life and I see uh, just disobedience everywhere. And I've not loved you as I should have. Um, Father, we're right where we are, help us to see that these, these wonderful promises don't come to us once we've reached varsity. Once we've, once we've done enough to prove ourselves as worthy. None of us are worthy. And so, Lord, would, would you refresh us in this precious truth today that the promises of Jesus come to those who have faith in him. That we, we look away from ourselves and we look upon you, Lord. And trust you. And if we trust you, then you will bear your good fruit. You will achieve your great works through us. You will bring about answers to prayers and and, and the kind of heart, Lord, that even desires to pray for your glory above our own. You will lead us more and more into obedience as we come to see and love you with all our hearts because you have granted us the gift of your spirit who indwells us and is our helper. Father, do not allow us this morning to to say this is is just too good to be true. This is true maybe for some others, but not for me. Lord, let us feel the weight, the wonderful weight these promises today because Jesus Christ is true because he has gone to the Father because he has accomplished our salvation freely and fully we may enjoy these promises and walk in them freely and fully Lord help us today where we are um, help us where we fail and fall short and Lord, refresh us in this, Lord, that you will, you will animate, you will empower, you will bring this about for your good pleasure and for your glory. Because Lord, the spirit within us is better than any physical person in front of us, even Jesus himself. We are at an advantage because he has gone to the Father. Help us to see that and to live it in Christ's precious name today. Amen.